This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. Welcome to another episode of Erased. I'm your co-host, Lisa Johnson. And I'm Colette Bowers-Zinn. We're so grateful you're here with us again for another episode. We're going to talk today about the journey to getting to private school and as parents of color, the things we wish we'd known when we were first starting out in private school. Colette. Yes. What did you wish that you knew? Ooh, that is a good question. I asked the best. I had been working in private schools for a year when I had my first child, almost two years when I had my first child. And I wish I had known how different being an employee is in a private school versus being a parent. There's a whole culture to being a parent in private school. But you also, being the daughter of Ravita Bowers, your whole experience coming in. So for me, I was the parent that was happy to be there. I was the parent that came in thinking... This is the end-all, be-all. They know what's best, soup to nuts, A to Z. I don't question anything. I do what I'm told. I'm happy to have a slot. I just, I was that parent. I was happy to have my kids there and to to provide this experience for them. I was not happy at all with being Ravita's daughter again and being treated accordingly and assumptions being made and silly things being said to me. You know, like, isn't it great that you're here for free? Oh, I'm paying the same dollars you're paying. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, those You know, grandma being head of school does not mean that tuition does not need to be paid. Right. But um, so I I wish, yeah, I wish I had known really in a nutshell how unique navigating the parental social dynamic was. My parenting partner in crime and I had to early on really sit down and process it and come to the agreement that we just were not as a family going to try and keep up with the Joneses. When did it click? Soon, because like in trying to navigate this and be friends with everybody and figure it out, it soon became painfully apparent that if if we were going to try and keep up with the Joneses, it was going to drain us financially, physically, emotionally, and it just wasn't who we are. So I think you and I have kind of atypical experiences, but we're going to talk to two parents today to to broaden the conversation. Jasmine, Jasmine White, is a mother of three children in private school, son in seventh grade and two daughters in fifth and second grade. She's an associate marriage and family therapist who especially appreciates working with artists and individuals of African descent. She's also an artist herself, trained at the Savannah College of Art and Design, with a degree in media and performing arts. Welcome, Jasmine. Thank you so much for having me. And I should mention that, Jasmine, your children are at Westridge School for Girls currently, right? My middle daughter is at Westridge, and Mm -hmm. my other two are at a school called Okno Montessori. Excellent. And we also have Maisha Chappell, who works in education management as a VP for an international education company that works with over a hundred and twenty private schools throughout the U.S. Maisha has lived internationally in eight different countries for years with her family, but in March of 2011, relocated to L.A. Her two children in 10th and 4th grade attend Crossroads School for the Arts and Sciences. Well, welcome, ladies. 
And please, I, I just really need to acknowledge the uh, diversity of geography <laughs> in this episode. Um, and also, we should name where our children go to school as we're navigating this conversation in fairness. Sure. Right? So My two children in third and sixth grade are at Campbell Hall. And I have an eighth grader at Geffen Academy who will, in the fall, start at my alma mater, Harvard Westlake. Thank you very much. And I have my younger, who is 11 and in the fifth grade at the Center for Early Education. So let's dive right in. Ladies, we always like to ask our guests, when was the last time they felt erased? And when we say erased, we mean just made to feel invisible, diminished for your gender, your socioeconomic status, the color of your skin. Um, Maisha, why don't you kick it off for us just really quickly? When was the last time you were erased? Wow. Um, <laughs> I that, that question hit me like fast and hard. Um, I was in a dialogue with other parents. I was the only black woman in the conversation. And we were in a conversation actually about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, somehow in that conversation, I felt <laughs> erased. Yeah. Luckily, we were able to address it and, and work through it as we often have to do as black women, we end up having to do a lot of the heavy lifting, even when yep. we are on the receiving end of things. But that that's my share with that. Jasmine, when was the last time you were erased? First of all, I think this is an amazing question because it allows, you know, the people who you're asking to feel like we're seen, right? Mm -hmm. We get to share these experiences where we felt like we weren't seen. Yeah. So something, it was hard for me to think of something because I felt like everything I kept going to was more on the lines of like vicarious trauma that I had experienced from hearing about things that other people had experienced. But recently I was on a call with a good friend who isn't black, but she's similarly racially minded. And she made a complaint that I've heard like so many times before. We were talking about how her hairdresser didn't understand her hair mm -hmm. and gave her a jacked up haircut. And she was commenting on how her hair is curlier than many others in her, of her race. And that it's always been so annoying that her hair is curlier than, you know, other people like herself. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, how many times have I heard non-black people say things like, "Ugh, I can't stand when my hair is curly or, my hair is almost as curly as yours, but mm -hmm. I keep it straight because I can't stand it. Or, you know, a person with slightly wavy hair says to a person with straight hair, like, oh my gosh, your hair is so beautiful. I wish my hair was like yours. Something like that. So in this fleeting moment with my good friend, who I don't believe would ever do anything to intentionally hurt me, but she made this comment and I just sunk because I felt like when I hear this comment... I'm always thinking if your wavy hair is or somewhat wavy hair is annoying, what do you think about mine? You know, mm -hmm. like I love my hair, but what you're clearly revealing to me is that my hair would be your worst nightmare. Did you have that conversation? We didn't have that conversation. You're about to now. <laughs> as, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking like, because all of our conversations are, you know, a lot of our conversations center around race and our different experiences. And so 
I thought to myself, I'm going to have to tell her about this. And then boom, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to tell her first <laughs> about this before I tell her to listen to the podcast. <laughs> Amen. Well, thank you for sharing that ladies. Yes. That's partially why we asked that question. Cause it is important that we see each other, if nothing else. So the admission season just wrapped up recently in schools and decisions went out to students and families, and then they made their school choices. Tell me, ladies, what made each of you decide to enroll your children in their current schools? Maisha. Uh, because we spent a long time living overseas and because we actually had Isaiah enrolled in a full immersion program in Japan and, and we had always gone from place to place, he, he kind of had a global experience as a kid. Oh, I, I should mention, we're originally from Detroit, Michigan. So I didn't know anything really about the private schools here in LA at the time. So as we navigated our process and we applied to a lot of different schools, the thing that my husband was very focused on was how he interacted with the other parents and whether or not he could see himself being a part of the parent community for 13 plus years. Uh, for me, Initially, I was very focused on the academic side of things because my background is in education. I wanted to understand what some of that looked like at, at the different schools. But our, our final decision ended up being very tied to how Isaiah felt in the process. He went to his school visits and to the interviews. And I think at the time we had 21 combined interviews between our parent interviews, Yamaya's kindergarten interviews and Isaiah's sixth grade interviews at the time. Good God. He went, <laughs> yes, it was almost, it felt traumatic, actually. What not we told them to we do. Right. <laughs> Can I just ask, <laughs> roughly how many schools was that? Over how many schools? Seven schools. Seven, okay. Seven schools. It was a lot of scheduling. Time. So you're saying these institutions <laughs> had three separate interviews for you? Most of them. School uh, feedback. One and done, schools. Listen up, one and done. If you have a family, <laughs> so get them in on one visit. That's crazy. It's it's hard to schedule as because we're we're both we we work full time. Right. And yeah, um you know, we point. were doing a lot of shuffling and we had to actually pull in my, my sister friends to kind of help us of out to, for a couple of things. Because again, we're not from here, so we don't have yep. family yep. Uh, around. But the final decision for us really was how Isaiah connected at Crossroads. He went there. He had a group interview. He walked out. He walked up to the admissions director, Eric Barber, shook his hand, looked him in his eye and was like, this is my first choice. This is where I want to be. Aww. And he was speaking his truth. My, my son really felt I love it, and he felt like that's where he wanted to be. And so that really resonated with me. And, and how I was looking at things yeah. because it, he was going into sixth grade and I really wanted him to be at a place where he would thrive and be happy to go there. I will say so. that's the dope trifecta, though, looking at the academics, which was important to you, looking at the community, which was important to your hubby. Because guess what? Absolutely. Apple and tree, folks. Apple and tree. So if you're not feeling the adults, then the kids probably aren't what you want them to be either. And then most important, I agree with you, if the child is old enough, you know, where do they feel as though they belong? Jasmine, yes. what went into your decision? Yeah. 
So similarly, I'm not from this area. We're kind of new to California in general. And so I didn't know the whole landscape of schools here. So I initially chose the Montessori school because we had tripped into Montessori when we were first pregnant with our first child and in a small town in South Carolina. And at that time, it was like, what's the best school here? Like our best option is this Montessori school. So we'll go there. And then one move after the next, we kind of continued to end up in Montessori schools. And so when we moved out here, we ended up at Oak Knoll. But my middle daughter eventually said, you know what, I love this school, but I I want more. And then when we asked her what she meant by more, she essentially described a more traditional education. Mm -hmm. And so we live in Pasadena. So she had seen Westridge just by driving around. Mm -hmm. And she was like, that one, that that one looks good. (laughs) So it was really her. Like she read through the whole website. And at the time we were feeling like, no, don't you want to stay at Montessori? You know, it's so, it's so easy going. And, you know, in retrospect, I think I would have considered more than I considered at the time. So at the time, I'm just like looking around, okay, how many black people are here? How many Latinos are here? You know, like, what what does it look like here? But, you know, in retrospect, I would have done even more digging, because now I feel like, it's not enough to just see, you know, that they've splashed their like five black students on the website 20 times or that there are several affinity groups. It's really about digging into asking questions that lead to more complex answers about what they're doing in their community as far as diversity, equity, inclusion, and all of that. So. Amen. I love how clear your your children seem to be about what they want. So speaking of that, being able to advocate a little bit for themselves, what's the biggest lesson you've learned as a parent in private school, particularly when it comes to advocating effectively for your children? One of the biggest lessons that I've learned has been about just being extremely present and a participant in the community um, to make sure that the school sees me and that the kids see my presence and that they feel empowered and they should have the confidence of advocating for themselves without fearing the consequences of doing it. Amen. Meaning that initial feeling that we tend to have of, I'm just, at least as you said, I'm I'm happy to be here. Exactly. I was just about to say, I'm lucky to be here. It's so easy to fall into that. It is so easy to fall into it. And our, our kids can pick up on it and they can start to feel that as well. And we don't even recognize it. Um, And that's not something that I experienced until I was in a private school situation as a parent here in LA. It was a very new thing for me to to kind of see, but because I was so involved and present, that made a huge difference. Did you know that immediately? I knew that something was different that I couldn't pinpoint. Mm -hmm. The school community was very warm and embracing to our family, but I couldn't pinpoint it. And so I had a lot of conversations. I would pull parents aside and say, hey, I just want to ask you a quick question just to try to figure out how to navigate that. Can you give an example of like one of the things you encountered that you were trying to navigate and needed to pull someone the, aside for? The, the lack of affinity groups. One of the things that drew us to Crossroads is we saw a lot of Black families in the, in the interview process. But then when we arrived, my husband and I looked around at the first new parent gathering and we were like, 
where did all the, all the where did everyone go? go? Yeah. And then when we started the year, again, the community was super embracing. The parents reached out for play dates and it was, it was fun and exciting, but I was so accustomed to creating community or, or almost being like magnets when, when I'm around other people of color mm -hmm. in, in different places, whether we were living in, in Japan or, or living in New Zealand, it always happened where we, we'd see someone, you know, you yep. do the, the yep. nod, the yep. wave, and then you connect. So I thought that automatically things would be set up yeah. for us to just, you know, I thought it was, it would be turnkey yeah. and it wasn't, it was a lot of work that still needed to be done in order to uh, get to that point. Jasmine. Will you share with us yeah. what the biggest lesson is that you've learned? I'd say two things. The first is kind of general, and that's if something my child has reported to me, I trust that. I trust their experience. Mm -hmm. I don't try to sweep it under any, I don't want to rock the boat rug. I address it with whoever needs to be brought into that conversation. That's one way that I not only model that for them, but then also you know, advocate for them. And the other thing, which I think is equally as important, is that when I bring a systemic or a curriculum-related issue or whatever else it might be to the school, I'm relentless in holding the school accountable. Because I feel like they'll often, you know, fill the air with warm compassion and flowery promises, but I've learned to wait and see. Because mm -hmm. I feel like good intentions are not enough and recognition of the problem is not enough. I want to know that there are going to be actionable steps. I'm looking for that follow through. But similarly, did you know that immediately or did it take you a second to realize it? And I guess I'm asking you both that question because I'm wondering, how do we help other parents who are just coming in? How do we help them get there faster? Yeah, I mean, I was raised up with my kids in a sense, right? So I, I didn't realize that I would have to do so much of that until I had my first child. And then so it's grown over time. Mm -hmm. So when I first enter a community, now I'm sort of on the lookout for it. And I'll bring up something within the first week of being in that community or before. Mm -hmm. But I would just say not to be afraid to advocate for yourself. Yeah, um, yeah that touches on a really interesting point that Maisha was making, too, that I want to highlight here again, because this is when I get on my soapbox with people of color in independent schools. We talked about the history of independent schools and how they were coming. The boom was coming out of white flight. So these institutions literally were built, a lot of them, to keep us out. And I bring that up again so as to say we need to flip the switch on that mentality and get really quickly to the place where we see ourselves as the gift. We are Absolutely. the gift, and we cannot say that enough to people of color in independent schools. The flip side of that is, as a lot of our mamas said, including mine, a closed mouth does not get fed. You best believe yeah. that other tuition-paying folks, just as we are, yep. are asking for their every need yep. to be fulfilled. If you're in a restaurant yeah. and it's not going according to plan, you say something and you figure out how to make it right. It's the same thing. In a school, a meal costs a whole lot less than these tuitions. So you best get in there and speak your mind. Now, how you do that is everything. Is everything. <laughs> and so I love it's the fact that you said that you're relentless. And I also would imagine and would love for you to speak on relentless also comes with finesse and grace. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. That is such a good point because even when I'm writing emails, you know, when I'm writing my email, I'm all charged up. You know, when if I'm talking to my husband, I'm like, you know, blah, 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 you know, going <laughs> off about it. When it's time to write the email, you know, I'm reading it over several times. I'm like, let me make sure, you know, here I'm going to tell you all the good things that are happening that you're doing. You are wonderful. Now here's where you messed up. But I have so much faith that you can fix it. You know, like I'm behind you. You can fix this thing. So yeah, I agree. It's about finessing that. Now, if their immediate compassion or their flowery promises don't amount to anything, then the emails start to change if the response isn't what they initially um, said it would be. So Maisha, how do we help, again, going back to that last question, how do we help newly enrolled families coming in, get there faster without scaring them to death, without worrying them too much? really empowering them and encouraging them to get to where you are now. So because there is so much suffering and silence that we do in um, private school communities and in predominantly white institutions, one of the greatest resources that, that new families can have is being able to connect to those affinity spaces where there are people who are not afraid to share and empower them in that way so that they have the confidence and the security in being able to be the person in the family that they were when the school said that they wanted them there so badly. And we've all seen this where it's a a big deal to pull in amazing families, amazing Black families into the school and they get there. They don't really know what to do with them. We come with a, a lot of uh, baggage that we don't deserve of being to this or to that, trying to combat a bunch of stereotypes that we have to like navigate through in the process of being in, in, in these private school environments. But it doesn't really allow families, parents, and even students to really be their authentic selves. And I'm not saying that um, that happens all the time, but it happens what I've a loved lot about this year. It happens a lot. It happens a lot. Right. It, it happen. It happens too much, and we end up crushing and diminishing a lot of yeah. the the light that is within within our our kids in the process without without realizing it. Even as parents, we can sometimes fall back and and try to just play nice and keep our head down. We can also feed into that, right? But what I've loved about this year is the connections that that we were able to make with our new incoming families. Because we have our Black Family Alliance at the school, we're able to kind of pull them in earlier, make personal connections with families so that they know that they can have someone to come to to ask questions. They don't have to go through that same struggle if they have people who are there And it's really important to note that some of the responsibility of it also falls on the school, a big chunk of it in in supporting those affinity groups and making sure that we have the resources so that we're not doing all the lifting in order to make sure the families have what they need. So are there any insights that you have for successful interactions with school regarding we're going to go through academics, then school culture, and then financials. But let's start with academics. Any particular insight for successful interactions? The first thing that I can think of is goes back to advocating for your child. So academically, we want to you know look at 
what they're reading. So let's just take language arts and checking out the reading list and seeing what's on the docket for reading this year for your child and their grade level. And what I do when I do that is instead of just jumping to conclusions when I look at the books, I make sure that I research each of the books yet if I don't know about them. And then so that I can speak from an informed perspective. You know, I don't want to assume there's no black people in the book, but that's usually what's true. So so then when I when I find that out for sure, then I'm able to go to the teachers and say, hey, you know, I want my daughter or my son to feel like, you know, they're reflected in the stories that they read. If they don't feel valued in what they read, then how will their classmates value them? You know, what message are you trying to send? And I found that to be pretty effective in getting the schools that my kids are at to change their reading lists. I want to add to that. The other piece extending upon that is that it is 2021 and we no longer need to have what you're saying specifically about representation in literature, that that people of color be represented through oppression. There's plenty of amazing literature that have uplifting stories because what you're saying is true. The other kids in the classroom are learning lessons, both consciously and subconsciously, about a people and a culture and their peers through what they are learning and reading. And so we need to shift to some uplifting, non-inward using literature pieces as we are continuing to teach our kids in this multicultural world. Exactly. You can't stick the one kid in the classroom where the N-word is being repeated in a book where the other, you know, the female protagonist is a slave or just newly freed or something like that. And then expect them to be able to hold that alone with a white teacher, probably. I love that. I hope that sends the message to that teacher that, you know, moving forward, they should maybe give that a little bit more consideration for that next school year. Maisha. Yes, I've had to try to become more and more comfortable in having uncomfortable or what may be perceived as uncomfortable conversations with other people, um, including teachers. And I don't mean in a confrontational type of way, kind of touching on what you said, Jasmine. I noticed that my daughter was reading, her class was reading a, a, a book where there were characters who had been enslaved in the novel. And I didn't have a heads up about what they were covering in class with this particular novel. And so reached out to her teachers. We had a a wonderful conversation. And I, I could ask her like, hey, I just need to understand when you talk about this character as a class, are you referring to the character as being a slave or are you referring to them as being enslaved? because this is this is very important to me as a parent and I really want to understand this as I'm having conversations with my child. We end up having to do a lot of double work mm-hmm. in order to Amen. Uh, balance out Amen. what our kids either aren't getting or what they're experiencing at school. And you all asked the question, what did you wish you knew? I wish I really understood the amount of curriculum development I would need to do as a parent beyond three o'clock PM. And I love pouring into my kids, but it's a lot. And it's a lot when you're paying tuition at a private school, because you expect it sometimes with, with public schools, you expect that you might have to supplement work and supplement activities and even supplement cultural exposure to things. And I think that I was a little naive and not knowing that I would have to do so much of it on an even grander scale 
in order to balance out what was happening. And and I, I also just wanted to say that uh, on the academic side of things, and, and this is especially when I think about Isaiah, who's in high school now, I do expect him to have an equitable experience. I don't think a teacher can treat every child the same way. So I need, in protection of my, my Black son, and in support of him during his education process, I need to know that the teachers understand that and they've been trained in that way, or they are on board in, in terms of having conversations in terms of like what that might mean. Because it might look different for my kid. And my, my, my child also has a greater fall when he fails or if something happens at school. I think that's a nugget for teachers and administrators, quite frankly, to take away from a lot of what you just said is that don't take it personally when we come to you with questions and or feedback. It's not about you as a teacher. It's not about your skill. It's about us advocating what's in the best interest of our kids. And it's not personal. It's personal to us and our children for obvious reasons, but it's not a personal critique or attack on you. Um, Can I ask you, Maisha, to say a little bit more about what you are seeing as the need to supplement curriculum? Because I'm not sure you said it directly, like the why and what you're trying to supplement for so that our listeners can have a better understanding of your need. I have always had to curate their own reading lists based on a lot of research that I would just do on my own, a lot of sharing with my family, because we have friends who have become our families out here in California now, and a lot of them through the school met some amazing families. And then also from our friends back in Detroit, we share, and and then I share the list with other people. Um, Also, locally, figuring out culturally, how do I balance things out? That might be us taking trips to the underground museum. When I, when I said earlier, it's a lot of heavy lifting for, for you as a parent to have to do all the supplementing Mm -hmm. um, because it hits on the social aspect of their lives and private school village PSV. As soon as Lisa sent out those first couple of invitations, I was there (laughs) showing up. And you can see the difference that it would make for the kids to just look around and to finally be in the majority in the situation. For my daughter, she she could see other girls with their hair braided. Like it was it was the norm. And so you you have to try to figure out these pockets within your community. And I love our school. If we didn't love our school so much, we probably wouldn't still be in LA. But we we love our school community. But that doesn't ever mean, and I say this to parents when I talk to them during the interview process, it does, if you go to a school and the school feels like they don't need to grow and they have it all right, that's probably a red flag. Yep. Right. You want to be in an (laughs) environment where you know that there is a lot of room to grow and people are willing to do the work in order to get there. We love our schools too. And that doesn't mean that we aren't, you know, looking at reading lists and anything that, that crosses over into our culture. My partner in parenting and I are reading those books on the side and then talking our kids through our cultural history and perspective as they are navigating that curriculum. Not because we don't love our schools, but because we feel a particular responsibility to help them understand that there is power in our stories and in our history that they might not receive that same message as we would like them to receive it in their institutions as well. 
Can I just ask, when did you guys start doing all this? Because I'm a third and a sixth grader and I'm feeling woefully behind. Well, I will also say this, Lisa. It's, you know, I often say to Andrew, God help families where, you know, I'm an educator. My mom's an educator. And so this is easy and pleasurable for us to do this. But people work, people have lives. And so the need to do that, where is the time, the energy, and and quite frankly, the wherewithal to to be able to do that and th- and that's the disheartening piece like yes it is a pleasure for us because that we like to engage that way but it is a burden at the same time to feel like we're paying $40,000 a year and needing to supplement mm-hmm. curriculum so as to know that it is being handled to our cultural satisfaction it's a both and on that and so I started super early because that's what I do for a living. But I wouldn't ever consider yourself behind because whether it's talking about the book that they are reading explicitly or current events or Black history at the dinner table, we're all supplementing. Yeah, all the time. What about financials? Any insights into what makes for successful interactions with the school and financials? There's so much around aid that just needs to be out in the open. There's financial aid, Not, there's donations, there's speak to yeah, any of it. Give us your insight. Right. Programs. So what I've found in having um, the opportunity to have direct interaction and engagement with not just prospective families, but families that are in the decision-making process before they make their deposit, the suffering and silence, especially around financial stuff related to Black families coming into private schools, it's a very big problem because they often don't know if they are able to ask questions and if those questions will hurt them. Ask all the questions. (laughs) And so I I always say, you want to ask questions. You're making a 13-year commitment often. And if there are things that you need to know, you should ask. Even if you feel like I'm afraid that my spot will be jeopardized if I ask. Like, I, I don't know at what point in the process something needs to change, but you have a lot of families that enter in and they don't know that they have the value there and that they're adding to the school and that someone is doing them a huge favor by letting them be there. And I know that there is a trust factor that Black families have when they step in to a school community and they see other families that look like them. They might feel like, oh, maybe I can ask them and maybe I could, they'll give me the inside scoop without judging me. Yeah. And so we've we've got to figure that out cuz it's very oppressive for a new family and a currently enrolled family and, to have to to suffer like And that's where that affinity space becomes Absolutely. crucial as well, being able to establish those relationships um and and ask those questions. I will say one of my biggest pet peeves that I am championing all the time though is private school culture equating people of color with financial need in their institutions. Amen. That needs to end. Because there are plenty of people of color paying full tuition. So Jasmine, what are your thoughts? Do you have any feedback for the financial aspects? Yeah, for the financial aspect, I would say, one, I have found that middle class black families tend to have the notion that they can't qualify for financial aid and that they don't make enough to pay. So and I'd say that that's not right. It's important to just ask because 
I've spoken to various friends who have said, oh, I don't put my kids in private school because I don't have that kind of money and I can't qualify for financial aid. And I'm like, you'd be surprised. Two, if you're not a family who has $20,000 to donate to the school when they start asking for additional money, don't feel the pressure to give more than, than you can. Give what you can and show up. Make yourself yeah. invaluable in service. And then people don't necessarily question what you're giving in a dollar amount. But if you're not able to give in a dollar amount and you're not showing up, then you're not of the, the optimal value to the community. So you got to figure out where you fit in. That's a great point. Ladies, switching gears a bit, what are your thoughts about the current state of our schools right now? Overall, not just your individual schools, but what do you think since last summer and everything that went on, what do you think about the response? How are you feeling about the state of our schools right now, Maisha? I am glad that our schools are being held accountable to acknowledge and make changes But what I struggle with is the trendiness and the marketability of saying like, we believe in diversity and equity and inclusion and everyone's talking about it and everyone's saying that they're doing it. It's not a thing that you could do for just a little bit of time and then you're tired of it. You even see it with parents getting behind it initially and saying, no, this isn't right. Black Lives Matter, you know, the school needs to do something. And then as soon as they start to feel uncomfortable, it was, it's like, whoa, whoa, that's too much. (laughs) We weren't asking you to do all that. It's just, you know, there's too much focus on, on this stuff now. I would love for schools to also in the process of this, to be able to say, and this is not a trend for us. I'm also at crossroads on a strategic planning committee for, for diversity, equity, inclusion. I know I just said like, yeah, everyone's doing this, (laughs) but there's so much work that needs to be done and it's not a, it's not an overnight fix. Yeah, I agree with Maisha. There's all this, you know, upfront excitement that then seems to dwindle. I felt that with friends who hadn't really engaged and had said, oh, this is all new to me, you know, and then that has sort of dwindled those conversations, the talk about what books they're reading and articles, et cetera, et cetera. Schools tend to have um, a similar reaction. So I look for that institutional change. Sometimes I think about it in terms of dating or marriage, right? It's like at first there's all this excitement around the honeymoon period and then there's a lull and it's just about maintaining the relationship. And Mm -hmm. so I think if you built a strong enough foundation, then that relationship is maintained well. In this case, that would mean, you know, if during this push, you've actually hired new black administrators, you know, and people um, in positions of power, if you've gotten more teachers, if you started to, you know, bring in an expert to change your curriculum, if you've done things that will create lasting change, then that will make the difference versus Uh, the schools who just jumped on the bandwagon of posting something and then holding one conversation to talk about, you know, race in America. And there's a financial aspect of this that is on the line for schools to be really committed to the work. Because if a school is going to really stand behind doing the work, they're going to end up pissing off a lot of donors who who might be tired and over it. Oh, but they're going to gain some too. But they will yeah. gain they will so gain many, so many more, and they, and they will gain so much yeah. 
beyond that even as a community for making that commitment. And the community will show up in ways that it hasn't before financially to say thank you and we support this work. So we got one last question here as we are continuing to discover what I wish I'd known when starting private school. Ladies, is there anything that you would do over? Let's start with you, Jasmine. <laughs> I, I, I think do over. I'm constantly conflicted with even the decision of private school versus public school, right? I'm probably more conflicted now than I was before I put my kids in these schools, right? And I feel like with Black parents, it's a, it's a like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't dilemma, whereas a lot of other parents don't have to think about it that way. Yep. You know, it's like we can go to public school and have more diversity, right? But then we give up all of these wonderful things about private schools, you know, like the community, the traditions, all the things that their the money can funding. afford. The funding, right? <laughs> the funding, right? The alumni network, all of that. But then we miss out on that more diverse experience and our children being around more Black children. So I don't know that I would have made a different decision, but I feel like I, it's almost like there's this private school trap, right? Because then once you're there, I feel like it's hard to say, never mind, let me make a different decision because you see how good it is, right? You've gotten, you've gotten a taste of all that it can offer. So I'd say just making the most informed decision you possibly can before entering into a private school because there is a lot that you will miss out on in terms of that cultural experience. It will not be the same. And for unfortunate reasons, we'll raise kids that are stronger, more able to speak up for themselves and advocate for themselves, where they might not have had to do that as much if they were in another environment that was more supportive of who they are. So there's benefits, but man, that that dilemma is real. Like my husband and I just go back and forth constantly. Like, should we pull them all, you know, or should we keep them in? Like, are they going to are they going to have hated this experience? We have a you know, whole it's, it's, episode it's coming devoted to that very topic. Yep. Is it oh, worth it? You are not alone. You, you are, are not, not alone. alone. <laughs> <laughs> Maisha, anything you would do over? Yeah. I think that in that first year, I would go with my instincts in terms of the affinity group thing. Mm -hmm. It took a couple of years for me to really figure out the culture. And I jumped in in terms of a volunteer, but in terms of the affinity space that was needed, and I feel like my children and family deserved, if I could go back, I would have done more as a new parent. Also, when you're new, you don't want to rock the boat, right? You you just want to kind of get in and, and, and enjoy it. And I wish that I had asked more questions to the school about it and also asked for more support in getting it done so that we would have been able to benefit for a longer period of time and other families would have benefited from having that established because we all we we did have unofficial groupings and spaces but that I would pour more into that my first year I I have something that made me think of one more thing along those same lines is that you know you want to get in there and volunteer um, but I've learned that you want to well I personally want to find committees that are specifically aligned to my commitment to making sure that uh, my kids' schools are safe and celebratory of my children. 
And so, you know, it's great to get involved in like, you know, spring festival or something like that or whatever it might be. But if there are opportunities related to culture and equity that you can really jump into right away, for me personally, that's what I'm, I'm going to do. Because otherwise, I'm going to give up my time that I could be spending on work as a mom, as a wife, as a friend to committees that aren't consequential in our lives. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Jasmine White. Maisha Chappell. Thank, Thank you, you for, having for having us. Me. I feel honored to just be a part of the conversation with you all. So uh, sure. th- thank Same. you. I mean, this is a part of the, the big work that has to be done, bringing people together. We need to do this more often, right? I mean, this whole suffering in silence, I just having a show around that. The many ways that we yeah. suffer in silence in school. Be great. Absolutely. Yeah. Check out our archives. There's some great topics there that are overlapping in what we're talking about now. We've touched on affinity groups a little bit. We have an episode you have to be sure to check out with Rosetta Lee. Gives lots of great information about the importance of affinity spaces. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks. But in the meantime, please remember to hit subscribe, rate, and review us, especially on Apple Podcasts. And, of course, you can always learn more on ErasePodcast.com or on IG or Facebook. All right. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. I'm Lisa Johnson. See you all in a couple of weeks for the next episode of Erase. Oh, oh, oh.